Welcome to Women Influencers in Business and CRE. I am Veronica Malolas, CCIM, founder and CEO of Capital Stack Real Estate Group, a commercial real estate company serving the greater Orlando area. Today, my guest is Jerry Frank, co-founder of Stratifolio, a prop tech company for commercial real estate property management. Before we begin, please don't forget to hit that thumbs up button and subscribe below so you don't miss the next episodes. I welcome your comments and please share with someone who can benefit from this podcast. Jerry grew up in a small farm town in Iowa and has always been intrigued by the stories of people, particularly in what drives decision-making. Her master's degree was in women's studies, and she was quoted in a book about valuable lessons learned from running a marathon. As property owners, and consequently property managers, Jerry and her husband Uriel developed and launched their company, Stratifolio, which was named one of the top commercial real estate portfolio property management platforms by CRE Tech and selected into the prestigious 2022 National Association of Realtors REACH program. One of the challenges she discussed with me is about a woman founder's disadvantage in seeking funding. So get ready to be motivated by my guest, Jerry Frank. Well, hello, Jerry. How are you? Hi, Veronica. It is so good to be here today. Oh, I am so happy to have you on my podcast, Jerry. I really appreciate it. I know that we met fairly recently because we are both in a women's group called the Power Beacons, a group of very influential women in our industry. And so I'm just so grateful that you have raised our podcast. And today, what I wanted to do was to just tell your story. And that being said, uh, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I actually grew up on a farm in Northern Iowa. Wow. Yeah. So there was, it was fairly remote. Our nearest neighbor was half a mile, three fourths of a mile away. Nobody locked any doors. I had four brothers and sisters and you know, we walked beans, detached corn, had massive garden that we harvested every single year. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I was the oldest of five and I grew up there until it was time to, to leave, leave to go off to college. And then I went to the University of Northern Iowa and I got my bachelor's degree in history and really enjoyed history a lot and really liked women's history in particular. Well, well, why, why history? Why, why did you, I know you liked it, but why did you choose that to be your major? Yeah, I love the stories of people. So it's interesting that we're having this conversation, actually. Yeah. I am all about understanding what makes people make the decisions and choices that they do and what, what influences were happening at that time that made them do that. Um, I'm, I just, I really enjoy getting to know everything about a person, how things are connected. I like those connections. Oh, that's, that's so awesome. And and it is so very kind of apropos because you are here telling your story. So, so continue on. You, you got, you went to university. Yep. I went to the University of Northern Iowa, the, the third state school in Iowa. And we, I, I, finished my degree in history. And then my plan was to go on to get a degree in women's history. And, but at my school, there was, you could get a master's degree in women's studies. So I did that. And 
through that degree, I actually did focus on women's history. And I, I actually wrote my thesis on women in World War II and how they were portrayed in movie tone newsreels versus movies and did sort of an American studies approach to that. And, and so I've always continued to, to really watch things that come out about World War II and women's history in particular. Wow. That, that is amazing to me, Jerry, because not, I don't think I've come across anybody who's really just had a very like big interest in, in women that way. So what made you, I know you said you have interest in World War II and because that was your thesis, yeah. obviously, but what else had made you kind of want to do women's studies? As a master's degree, too. Yeah, yeah. and I, I don't always share it with people because not everybody thinks it's uh, thinks a lot of that degree. Um, so I, I've kind of hidden it through time. Although as, as I get older, I get less and less concerned about what people really think about it. Oh, for sure. I, I got a really good education with some people that I still stay in touch with. And these are, these are thinkers. They're they're critical thinkers. They analyze things, and they're great people. And I'm I'm really glad and fortunate to have had the opportunity to go through that program. Wow, that sounds amazing as an, an experience, and also as a woman yourself to have mm-hmm. really delved in, into that. Okay, and then you went on to your first job. Yes, I went on to my first job, and. It was not in women's real estate, women's history. I, I'd actually planned to go on for a PhD. And it's a per, if you ever go on to teach collegiate history or anything in college, it's a pretty competitive roadmap, yeah. possibly. And at that point, I decided, you know what, I, I didn't get into the initial school that I wanted, which happened to be in, in Wisconsin. And I thought, all right, well, let's see what else is out there. Let's, let's take the next road. So I ended up moving to down south in Iowa to, to Cedar Rapids. And I, I took a, a job at a telecom company mm-hmm. and I was there for, for quite a while. And then telephone telephones really never lit me up. So I ended up going then to Pearson where I worked for almost 15 years. And Well, hold, hold up one second. Now the telecom company, what year was that? Cause I'm curious. Cause you know, <laughs> telecommunication is so different then than it is now. Yeah. So it would have probably been, Oh, like 95 to 2001 or two. D- describe that for me, like yeah. the telecommunications, how different it was then than it is now. Yeah. So at the time it was this, it was a startup in Iowa called McLeod USA. And it was, it was a new CLEC. That's the term for it. And it was, you know, we were bringing up new phone lines all over the country and, giving people a, an alternative to the Ma Bell companies, essentially. And so that's what we were doing. And so I was a project manager there, but it wasn't really that inspiring to me to turn up phone service. <laughs> and it was a really interesting time for me from watching a startup and how it works because mm. it, it was a startup and they had done really well. And they had also made some incredibly horrendous mistakes. Ah, so and you learned from that. I, I, of everything that I have learned in my professional career, I think I take some of my biggest learnings from McLeod because there was they were growing rapidly. They were 
if you look it up, they were doing incredibly well. They eventually, some of the things that they were doing kind of, I think, backfired on them in, in multiple ways. They eventually went bankrupt and, and some version of McLeod still exists. Mm-hmm. It was significant learnings for me uh, from a leadership standpoint of what, what helps a company and what hurts a company. Right, right. Wow, interesting. And then you moved on to Pearson. I moved on to Pearson uh, Education. And that I enjoyed. And what I was doing there, I was a, a my last position there was a director of testing for this very large program called PARC, Partnership for the Assessment of Readiness for College and Career, and started out with a very large consortium of states. And then it kind of whittled down over time. But it really, it was about raising standards for students across the entire country and then ha- holding them to a similar level. And so we would create these tests, which is a very deep, there's a lot of work that goes goes into creating really valid tests that students can take. So I did that. And when I left there, they were starting to have some layoffs. And at the time, Uriel and I had already sort of launched our first company. Now, Uriel is your husband. Yeah. Oh, and let me take a pause because I wanted to tell you that my son-in-law, one of my son-in-law, he worked for Pearson. Oh, yes. Before the layoffs, I don't know what year you worked there, but he's in IT Uh and he is a creative. I don't even want to guess what he did there, but but he was, you know, he was working there. And and, um, anyway, I didn't know whether you you actually what year you worked there. But it was interesting to me when you were saying Pearson. But anyway, yeah. so so you and Uriel yep. created your first company. And yep. why did you do that? Yeah, so Uriel and I met, met each other through Match. Uh, oh, wonderful. And I, I was divorced previously. I was you know, planning to not have any relationships again, I think. And then thought, well, I'll just see what's out there on Match. And this was back in the early early, I'm about mid 2013, 2014, somewhere around there, met him on match and didn't put up any kind of profile picture or anything. Cause I didn't really, I wasn't sure I wanted to be out there at all. Mm-hmm. That through that. And we hit it off immediately. Same sort of things that we like to do for fun. Same types of movies like that we like to watch. We enjoyed each other's company. And well, what kind of movies? Because I'm a movie buff too. Oh, we're we're all about action adventure. Ooh. So it was sort of like we have during the weekend. There are Friday night needs to be comedy or action adventure, so we can stay awake because we're tired. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday can be something that's more drama because we're better well rested. Sunday night we like to we like to end on a feel good movie. So, ah, so you actually watch movies three days a week? Well, not not always, but it, yeah. like. We're going to watch a movie that's uh, we'll follow that pattern. Wow. I got, I, I get it. I love movies because it just feels like I can escape from the really hard business life that we have. But yeah. yeah so, so you, you created which company? Yeah. So we, so we first started off the reason why we, we built any company to begin with is when we did, when we got married, we each then had a condo and we bought a house. So we immediately became real estate owners. Yes. And, and my financial advisor had spoken to me a number of times about 
you know, extending what I was doing, going into other assets and made perfect sense to start that. So then as we are working at Pearson and, and Uriel, it was, or he, at that time, he was a senior software systems engineer in the aerospace industry. So, wow. so, you know, you were taking, we're taking our bonuses and we were putting it into real estate. But the question is then how are they performing? Mm. And because we're both analytical in nature and want to make sure that the work that we're doing gets us as far as we possibly can get it to go. Right. And so that meant really analyzing how were our investments performing. And we redid it. We created a spreadsheet. We did look for solutions, but we're really unhappy with what we were seeing on the marketplace. Had the opportunity to go through an accelerator here in Iowa. And that really helped us focus on the fact that we should focus on commercial real estate. There's a real gap from a technologies perspective. I agree. But were you also doing your corporate jobs while you were building your first and second company? Yes, we were. Through the first one, we, we were. And because you, you don't want to stop working because you don't, you don't want to take money right away. You want to make sure you have something that yes. is comfortable. So strapping. Yes, we were, we are the kings and queens of bootstrapping. And so we we stayed at our full-time jobs and we would get up in the morning at four, work for an hour or two, come home and work for a couple more hours. And we did that for, for a while. And then luckily, at some point, I guess, luckily for me, Pearson was having some layoffs. And I I just said, you know what, I'll take one. And I had a relationship with with my bosses and they understood what I was doing. And and not that you can volunteer, but you can you can suggest that maybe you might be willing to take that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I took that after we had gone through the accelerator. So then I was really full time working on the business and Uriel went part time at Rockwell Collins at that time. And so we, we continue to have healthcare benefits. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. So we did that for a while as we were kind of piecing things together. And we had the opportunity to, to go through an alpha stage and a beta stage to test out what we were building because software is expensive to build. Yeah. And Which company are you referring to? Is it Asset Rover or is it Stratifolio? Yeah. So we kept we kept Asset Rover running and that was a residential product. We kept it running for a while until we really proved out Stratifolio and then we sold Asset Rover and had immediately put all of our time into into Stratifolio. You are co-founder and CEO of Stratifolio, which is about six years old, correct? As a business. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. So spend about, you know, a few seconds telling us about Stratifolio, how you built it and how it's proven to be really a great asset to the industry. Yeah. So we are our beta program, which was absolutely vital to what is now Stratifolio. We we took on 30 different beta clients. We weren't specific about what we wanted. We wanted to see what we were going to get out of this. So we had people who were residential, commercial, from all over. They had all different types of technologies that were they were using. And what we and we had them on board themselves. And what we learned through that activity were three very important things. One, we should focus on commercial real estate. We should focus on, and when I mean commercial real estate, I'm talking about medical, office, retail, anything with a multi-year lease, not 
residential or multifamily. Right. We also learned that over half of the people we were working with had QuickBooks as their accounting platform. And then the third thing we learned was people did not have the time to onboard themselves into the application. And so in order for us to control our destiny and, and make the product sticky, we needed to take control of that. So now we do a full service white glove onboarding for any client who comes into Stratifolio. Wow, that's that's fantastic. And, and I'm quite sure that your company has taken off and congratulations on all of your continued success. I'll say continued success because it's a work in progress all the time, owning a business. Well, well, that being said, I wanted to ask you if there was one challenge that comes to mind that you'd want to talk about as far as how you overcame it and how impactful that was to your life and your, your business or. Yeah. So there are, there are lots of challenges in building a business and corporate life gives you a a certain set of tools, but those tools, you only use a small fraction of them when you actually start your business from scratch, Right. Uh, because you have to open up a whole new set of tools that you didn't even know you needed to build or to have. That's right. Because the product that you're building becomes only a fraction of the things that you're really responsible for. Right. There are things we are learning every week. We're avid readers. We're always reading about what other people are doing, what staff doing, what are the what are the MA markets doing? The the place where I would say that I have been had the most challenges is in fundraising. Mm. So as a as a small company. And in a, in a SaaS world, it's very common for founders to raise money to grow their business because right. you're not selling anything until you have a product. That's and right. You, and even when you do have a product, you have to make sure that you are continuing to edit it, adjust it for those your clients that you're bringing in because you're figuring out stuff all the time. Right. That's product market fit. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Raising money, you know, there's there's... The whole trick of raising money first you had to learn. And what I what I felt, and I, I don't have any specific hard numbers on this, but I believe we would have been funded faster had I been male. Wow, that's very interesting. Because I have seen and read and listened to founders who say the exact same thing. Yeah. And we have a working product. This is not, and this is not a product that is, we hope it'll work. It works. We have customers across the United States and Canada. We're saving people money. We're like the real, like direct line to their balance sheet of things that we are doing that help them. And what we're finding, what I have found is I never get the, it's never blatant, but I am confident we would have been funded much earlier than we were. And is this because do you think that this is because the the actual capital markets is dominated by males and you know the the fund managers and investment groups they kind of really don't have a comfort level yet with women led companies it tell tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that yeah, it is. It's really interesting because when I'm talking to someone, it never comes across as, oh, you are a woman and I'm talking. Right. 
I'm having a conversation with them peer to peer of they're a fund and we're a company and here's what we're presenting to you. Do you have an interest? There is no, in my opinion, I am not looking at them as male or female. I am looking right. as a, as a, a source of funding, but for them, they clearly are, and it's not coming out in the conversations, but it is, I'm, I am very confident we would have been funded earlier. So is it in your thought, maybe because of the lack of confidence from the, you know, from the investment groups in women-led organizations or just because it's, they're just not used to it? Uh, I'm not really sure. I'd like to see the research on it and, and understand what's really going on there. I Maybe it's this industry because it's commercial real estate, which is, I mean- Male-dominated. Right. And, and really, when I when you think about it, it's a double whammy. I am- mm. I'm a, a female in commercial real estate industry, and I'm a female in technology. So oh, it's, yeah, what is really a double whammy? I I don't I don't think about it day to day. I am yeah. just do my best to drive our company to huge growth. That's what I'm here for. I I don't think about it as being a woman doing that. Sure, sure, but and yet you you came to the conclusion that because you, it's a a woman led organization that the funding was really not as as fast as a as a male led organization that's so interesting but how did you overcome that i mean how did you get your funding yeah you know it's it comes down to something that i i think is probably one of my core strengths and that is forming relationships mm. and the people i ultimately formed relationships with were the ones who invested in us and I have always been someone who has formed relationships, whether it was with you know colleagues at my workplace or colleagues outside of my workplace or my customers. You know, these are I enjoy getting to know people and understanding who they are and what they are, what what they need. So it's in some ways it really goes back to what one of my core strengths is relationship building. Wow, that's that's awesome. And you have a direct and good relationship with the National Association of Realtors. As a matter of fact, you are a participant of the REACH program. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So how did you connect with them? Yeah, so that came through Bob Gillespie. As we were, you know, kind of early days, Bob had reached out to us through the accelerator program and we just stayed in touch. And at some point he reached out again and said, Hey, there's a 2022 cohort, apply if you're interested. And we thought, sure, why not? But there's nothing. So, so is Bob a director of the, is it a state accelerator program or local accelerator uh, program? Yeah. So National Association of Realtors has an investment arm called mm-hmm. Second Century Ventures. Right. And that program is called REACH. Right. So, so we were in the 2022 class or, or cohort of reach commercial. Oh, that's that's fantastic. That that's really great. I wanted to move on to another question, if you don't mind. Sure. And this is a question of influence. Mm. I know that you were quoted in a published book and yeah. that you had mentioned to me that you still have people reaching out to you. Yes. Regarding that quote. So tell us a bit about that because to me when you say something and it was so impactful and somebody actually reaches out to you to ask you about that, 
mm-hmm. right away, I can establish the fact that you had influenced at least people or readers or whoever they may be. Yeah. So the book is called, might as well promote it. Yeah. The Non-Runner's Guide to Training for a Marathon. Mm. And so I, I took a class in college that was, the class was all about running a marathon. Wow. And you either passed or you failed. And passing meant you crossed the finish line. Right. So during that whole time, the, the professors that were running the class were, were collecting quotes from people and, and they were collecting um, information about us, about our, you know, what were we thinking about when we were running? How did we motivate ourselves? Um, just trying to document our thought processes as we went through the whole process. And so it was, I do still get people that will reach out to me after, I mean, this came out a while ago. And people will reach out to me and, and say, hey, is that you? And and I had actually a different last name in there. So it's funny to me that they can still make that connection that that was me. And read me the quote, if if you don't mind, what, what you had shared oh, in that book. There's several quotes in here. And I, I look back at here. And, and, and you were picked out of a class of how many? I think there are about 60 people in this class. Wow. And I, I remember talking about... Um, so, you know, a 26 mile run and I was talking about those last miles and how I was just pushing myself to finish and, and the tears that I had it as I actually felt like those last few miles of, of like, I went from running before that, like a couple of miles a week, maybe to in one day, I went 26 miles on my legs by myself. And, and I was just so incredibly happy with that accomplishment. And now after I, I've, I've had a number of challenges after that, where like, if it can be done, I want to try it. So on my 30th birthday, I thought I should run 30 miles. Wow. Yeah. And you did it? I did it. Wow. So I remember, Jerry, I ran with my daughter and my sister in a Disney, they call it Disney run over here. Yeah. And I didn't realize I was running a 10 mile run and I've never run a long race before mm-hmm. and so it's like super shocked that I had to do it and and I I do want to echo what you said that towards the last few miles I was ready to give up and mm-hmm. I really didn't think I could do it mm-hmm. but after I crossed the finish line I thought to myself if I can do that I can do anything yeah yeah exactly and to, to prove that this was not, I wasn't one, this one hit wonder on, on the, the running front. I also then the next year ran grandma's marathon in Duluth, Minnesota. And that was, that was me training by myself without wow. a class of, of, of support. And again, that was just that emotion of crossing the finish line and everything that had built up to it. And just, it was, it was wonderful. No, oh, that's that's amazing. And it people don't realize what sports really mean to development, personal development, and running a marathon really yeah. does teach you quite a bit. So congratulations on being quoted on that book and still still have people kind of asking you about it. That that's amazing. If there was one piece of advice that you can give to the people are listening in, particularly in maybe on a personal level, 
Mm-hmm. Right. What what would that be? It would be to, and this is advice I give to myself that I just need to be silent and listen mm. to what I'm actually saying to myself about myself and also about the answers are often right there within me. And I just mm. silent and listen and be honest with myself about what I am telling myself. Wow, that's interesting because I do recall that when I have, for instance, not just a conversation with myself, but someone else, and I'm trying to spitball or brainstorm. Mm-hmm. And if I listen to what I'm saying, you're absolutely correct. The answers were well within ourselves, mm-hmm. and it just needed an opportunity to be verbalized. Right. Well, Jerry, I think we've come to the portion of the interview where I'm going to hand over the mic to you. And you had a question for me. Yes, I I do have a question for you. And it actually uh, goes back to the whole theme that I have around my what I am interested in. And it's about people. And Mm -hmm. I'm interested in you are native Philippines, right? Yes, that is correct. And you were leaving a relationship and you moved to the United States. What, and divorces are difficult. There's a lot that goes with that. And and to, I'm curious about your experience of leaving the Philippines and then coming to the United States. And what was that like for you? And why make that choice? Well, as you know, you're also a, a divorcee like me, right? As you know, divorces actually really make you make some life-changing decisions, right? Well, that in itself is a life-changing decision. But my sisters actually all lived in the United States at that time already. were starting to build their lives as first-generation immigrants in the United States. My father in World War II actually served in the Philippine army that supported the United States in World War II. And so he and my mother had always thought that the future would probably be better for us in the United States anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, I married my then husband, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, is Singaporean, which means that I actually moved, moved from the Philippines to Singapore. And five years later, we decided to get married. And shortly after that, we were getting a divorce. So the main reason why I moved to the United States really was because of family, because it was always the dream of my parents for us to build a life here in the United States because it's the land of opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really feel like I needed to at that time because I had a life in Singapore and I had a husband. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, as you know, Something so devastating as that just makes you really start to rethink what would be best for you. And for a lot of immigrants, I think that that is primarily a reason to move to the United States is because it is the land of opportunity. And so I moved to the United States. Actually, in the beginning, my husband and I, he was taking some classes in L.A. And I thought I was going to stay with him in L.A. And I thought, I'll go visit my sisters, who, by the way, you know, in when you're from Asia, you always start in California because it's so much closer, right? But Florida is so far away in the East, like we would never think that. But 
if not for the fact that my sisters actually held me close Mm -hmm. and took me in and was just there for me. Mm-hmm. Well, my parents still lived in the Philippines. Eventually, my mother, after my father had passed, when she got her citizenship, she had also moved to the United States to be with us. And, and really, that was very painful for her to have left the house that they built together. And we were raised in that house. But yes, it is interesting how different it is when you were born and raised in a different culture and move to a foreign country and make a life for yourself. So many challenges. First of all, as I'd mentioned, English is my second language. Filipino is my first language. And I know you were curious about whether or not I spoke English growing up. As a matter of fact, the United States after World War II actually built the education system in the Philippines. And so most Filipinos, as you know, and I don't know whether you know this, but most Filipinos are very fluent in English. That's why the call centers are very, very good businesses over there is because the Filipinos are very good in speaking English and and because we were educated in the the English language. But still to this day, I have challenges in, in speaking and verbalizing my thoughts sometimes because it's not my first language. So that's one of the things that I think is different. Mm-hmm. Right. But yes, the primary reason why I moved to the United States is just to be with family after such a devastating experience. And it's been great. I I moved here in 1989. That kind of shows my age. But anyway, I've, I've told people that I've turned 60 this year <laughs> and the United States is still the best country in the world. Mm-hmm. Very best. Yeah. And we have our challenges. But right. Let me tell you, I'm glad to be an American citizen. Yes. So yes. there you go. I hope I hope that kind of answered a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Veronica. It's been a wonderful conversation. And hopefully we get to meet in person one of these days. Oh, yes, we will. Hopefully you'll come to Orlando and we can we can kind of have, you know, maybe a sip of coffee or or a pastry or even a, a meal. But thank you, Jerry. I know you're a very, very busy woman being the CEO and uh, co-founder of Stratifolio. You're doing such an amazing job promoting women and women entrepreneurs, and you're always in social media, so I appreciate you so much. Well, I hope you enjoy your weekend, watch a lot of movies, and uh, (laughs) we'll, we'll see you soon. Okay, take care, Veronica. Take care, Jerry. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye.